Casey Scott's rise to fame in Salt Lake City, Utah, was fast and furious, kind of like his life was at the time. He started in radio right out of college and moved to television after that, where he became a household name in the market. Then it all came to a crashing end, literally, when decades of partying caught up to Casey in an ugly DWI car wreck. That was almost three years ago, and the dude has been sober ever since. His story is inspiring, and he's hilarious. But it's only really funny because he's sober today and is committed to helping others struggling with addiction and breaking the stigma. His voice might sound familiar. He recently went viral when his daughter wrote a school project about life with her father in addiction and then the life with her father sober. It's got like 5 million views or something like that. We'll cover that and much more, especially Casey's podcast, which is called Project Recovery. This dude's the man. You are going to love him. But first... I was just out in California. I got a chance to hear this dude's new album, which is coming out in September. The only question now is, is he going to let us use some of it for the podcast? It's pretty awesome. He's throwing 105 miles per hour right now. We're talking about Kevin Souza. Stand by the ocean floor. Hey, you've reached Casey Scott, lover, fighter, gambler, not good at any of them. Leave a message and I'll call you back. Look, we got it. He's calling us. Casey. Yo, bro. <laughs> My man, look at this. I love it. Hey, what's happening? <laughs> Nothing much, man. What's happening with you? Well, you know, just uh, living the sober life. Are, are you in Salt Lake City right now? Yeah, so I'm just outside of Salt Lake City, a little community called Farmington, but for all intents and purposes, yes. You went to Utah State, right? Yeah, home of the Aggies, buddy. Lo- Logan, Utah. Yeah. 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 I know a little bit about being out there. I, I, um, I've done football games out there when ESPN used to have the Mountain West. They put us in Ogden one time. That's where I grew up. Oh, really? Biggity, biggity, oh. That's <laughs> right. You can take the kid out of Ogden, but you can't take Ogden out of the kid. Dude, yeah. that's the only place, Casey, that I've been, I've been jogging, and I got interrupted by, like, a bunch of cows crossing the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's me right now. You're talking to me and then Mike, our producer. Um, right on, Mike. What's happening, brother? So we'll get started right now if you're cool with that. Yeah, I'm ready to go. All right. Casey Scott is joining us. Uh, Project Recovery is the podcast. It's with Casey, and it's also, you have a therapist with you, right? Matt Woolley? So the story on that's kind of weird because uh, uh, after I uh, got let go from uh, the CBS affiliate and then uh, jump ship and went to the NBC affiliate, uh, they were really getting into the world of podcasts. And I was just going through a divorce, and this will play into my story a little bit uh, because alcohol factored heavily into my divorce. Um, me and this Dr. Matt were going to do a sh- podcast on being single dad. And so we were just talking about how we were navigating the crazy world of being a single dad. And, you know, the single dad means different things than it did 20 years ago. Uh, You know, now there's shared custody. And when you have the kids, you're the mom and the dad and all that stuff. So we're going to talk about that. The day that podcast was set to launch was the day I got my DUI, ran into a family and checked myself into uh, rehab. And so uh, that podcast never saw the light of day. Uh, and then, uh, I was in recovery, uh, when we were sitting in process groups, um, I came up with this idea for this podcast and you hear a lot of crazy stuff in rehab. Uh, <laughs> and I kept telling everybody I'm going to do this podcast. And these guys all thought I was absolutely crazy. I go, trust me, when I get out of here, I'm going to do this podcast because I want to show people the true face of addiction and I'm going to do this. And so we would, uh, we do mock, uh, like, interviews in rehab with people and stuff like that. And I was just trying to get a feel for what I was going to do. And when I came out, um, KSL, the, the, the affiliate here said, Hey, unfortunately, because of your morality clause, we've got to let you go. Mm-hmm. And I said, I understand. I understand. KSL. Said, so at, at the nice. time, so people know you were doing TV, you were doing mornings, kind of like going out, having fun, keeping, keeping it light. You yeah. Got, you got in the I wreck. Was a, I was, yeah. I was a feature reporter. And so I never had to report on death and destruction. Uh, I was like showing you the local bakery that's opened up or the circus is in town or, you know, just whatever. It, it, it was a feel good piece. It was just, it was trying to break up the monotony of all the bad news that we see when we turn on the news. Yeah. And you know, you've worked in the news business and the number one rule is in the news business is if you do the news, don't be the news. 
And uh, unfortunately, my DUI caused me to be the news. And it was front page on all the newspapers. It was every station running my mug shot. And, uh, uh, you know, that caused me to get fired. And I, and I understand it. And, and, and I get it. I'm not mad at them. Uh, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in, in a little bit. But they said, hey, we're going to have to let you go. And I said, well, okay, I understand that. I said, but I got an idea. I want to do a podcast on recovery. And I remember the GM, her name was Tanya Vea. She tells me, let me get this right. I'm firing you, <laughs> and you're pitching me on another idea. <laughs> Sounds go, like a guy that's yeah. inspired, you know? Yeah. And I go, yeah, because you know what? I, I, yeah, I've, I've got to do something, and I think this could really be big. And she says, okay, as long as you get a doctor to be your co-host. And I knew a doctor, Dr. Matt Woolley, he's a clinical psychologist. He wasn't too happy with me because I signed him on the first gig because I ended up getting a DUI. But I swallowed my pride and I gave him a call and I said, hey, I got this idea. I want to do this. And the only way they're going to allow me to do this is if you do it with me. Will you do it? And he goes, yep, let's do it. And that was over two and a half years ago and a million downloads. And so it's been pretty awesome. It's been pretty cool. Yeah, the uh, podcast am, is good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, it's, uh, it's solid recovery, and that's the best part about it. That's why when I listened to it, I was like, I got to see if I can get this guy to chat with me on the pod because what this is called the payoff, right? And the deal is it's basically a good look at the other side of recovery. Whatever works for somebody getting sober, there's attractive qualities that come with, with someone when they get sober, if, if they're working whatever they're working. And you, when I heard your podcast, I was like, this guy is, I never talked to you drunk, obviously. I never heard you drunk. But, like, I'm listening to you on your podcast, and I'm like, this guy's on fire. As an authentic, normal person, you're funny, you're cool, you're real likable. And it's like, why would, you know, you ask yourself, but it's because you're an alcoholic and I'm an alcoholic. It's like, why would this guy need anything else? You know, and I, we were talking with Dr. Matt on my last podcast about that, and I let a little, some people behind the curtain. And I think, you know, I didn't have any real trauma that got me into uh, alcohol. You know, I always wanted to be cool and impress the people. I was thinking about it in the shower this morning, and, you know, I grew up watching movies like Animal House, Stripes, Porky's, you know, all these kind of irreverent shows. And, it, and they all seem to be partying. Uh, and I just thought that's what you did. So I got into partying kind of innocently. You know, I just thought, hey, this is this. I mean, this is what the movies are about. This is what the older kids are doing. This is what I want to do. And I seem to be really good at it until the end. And I, I just got into it. And then it seemed to be always riding shotgun with me for the past 30 years. I mean, I started drinking when I was 14. I'm 47 now. I'm coming up on three years of sobriety on September 3rd. And, uh, it, it's amazing. And I, I mean, I, I it, it, it's crazy when you think back because I don't think people give, uh, addiction. It's just dudes because at some point it was a blast brother. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I had some really, really good times, And unfortunately towards the end, the bad times outweighed the good times tenfold. And, uh, I heard this interview with Sam Jackson, who's also a recovering alcoholic. They said, when did it get bad? He goes towards the end. You know, and I think that's where it gets bad for us all is toward the end. At first, it, it, it seems to be fun. It seems to be good. And it seems to be rainbows and unicorns. And this is amazing. And it's, and it's doing everything for me that I, that I think I should have. But then toward the end, it's not. So you start drinking when you're 14. You stopped on September 3rd. So in between there, you know, I want to go to, you're in college. You already start as like the life of the party. What's that experience like? So my nickname in college, are you ready for this? Yeah. Fun pig. Fun pig? I was the fun pig. <laughs> and uh, it was a crazy story because I, I was in a fraternity at Sigma Chi. And uh, my first year up there, I moved into the house. And it was a pledge and, and go through activation. I do all that. Dude, I would, give you, I would give you the handshake right now if I could. But so That's what I'm talking yeah. about. In hopes in the wind case. You <laughs> bet you, brother. And so as we're moving out, I borrow my dad's Bronco. And my dad's got this Bronco. And he's got this license plate that said Fun Pig. <laughs> and uh, it was a group he started with his friends when they were all young. And the whole premise was Fun Pigs never say no. So they go, hey, do you want to do this? Yes. You want to do this? Yes. Why? Because fun pigs never say no. So they were just always up for a good time. So I borrowed his Bronco. It had fun pig on the license plate. This brother of mine named Shows, he goes, you're the fun pig. And I go, oh, I don't want to be the fun pig. He goes, you're the fun pig. And so for the next four years, I was fun pig. And um, 
and I really lived it up. And so I was the guy that if Fun Pit came to the party, the party was there. It was happening. It was popping. And so I was Fun Pig for five years up at Utah State University. And um, that's where I really learned my, my partying skills. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, yeah, that's where we took it to the next level. As a Sigma Chi, you know this. I mean, there's stories that you tell people that you don't really want to tell them because, one, they're going to think you're a liar or they're going to think you're totally insane. And it was it was just that lifestyle that, you know, kind of got me on my road to TV and radio and everything that I got into. Well, dude, it's so rare that you talk to somebody. Only an alcoholic could pull this off. You're in college. You're the life of the party. And then somehow you parlay that into a job professionally, a successful career. Because so it- here's the crazy thing. I started DJing at the local bar up in Logan. Uh, because I was under eight and I figured if they thought that I was the DJ, then I was at least 21. So I was getting into the bars when I was 18 and 19 because they're going to like, no, this guy's not going to come in here and try to get in the bar if he's not 21 and nobody ever IDs the DJ. <laughs> you know, so I'm in the bars at 18 and 19 up in Logan, Utah and uh, just having a great time. And so then I, I started learning how to play music and DJing. And uh, to this day, I still DJ corporate events, weddings, whatever. You know, if you've got the cash, I'll come and spin the tunes for you. My dad was a TV and radio guy. And I always wanted to be my dad. I remember being in fifth grade. Everybody was supposed to write down on a piece of paper and draw a picture of who, what they wanted to be when they grew up. The guys next to me were drawing lawyers and football players and firemen and police officers. And I drew a picture of my dad and I remember the teacher goes, who is that? And I go, that's my dad. And they go, that's what you want to be when you grow up. And I go, yep. I want to be my dad. I've always wanted to be my dad. And so he was in TV and radio. So I wanted to be in TV and radio. So that's what I studied up at Utah state was journalism. Oh, so you and knew right away. So you, you studied journalism. So you hit the ground running after college and, and how do you get your first job? So I, uh, I went to the local radio station in Salt Lake. It was called 107.5 The End. And I know you had to start in the overnights because that's where most DJs start. And uh, I went to a guy and we made a tape that sounded like I was already on the air. Uh, I took it to the first station I went to and uh, they listened to it. And they said, well, why don't you go outside and come back in in a second? So I went outside and had a cigarette with this dude. His name was Dom Casual. He said, I'm looking for an overnight guy. And I was like, well, I'm looking for a job. And so I got that job. But when it parlayed into getting more time and more airtime is uh, I was DJing a party up at the fraternity house and uh, some guys were getting out of control and I had them kicked out of the party. And then afterwards, seven Tongans waited for me to unload my DJ stuff. And they decided uh, that they were going to teach me a lesson. And so I tried to fight one dude and that didn't work because I ended up fighting all seven. This is where the story gets good. Uh, <laughs> they break my jaw in three places. and so. Uh, I'm still on the overnight radio. So I go back to my program director and I go, Hey, uh, I got a job open and I need to still work. And they thought, well, this would be kind of a bit. So I spent three months doing overnights with my jaw wired shut. So, and so you're starting up by the way. So you're not just like spinning records. You're, you're creating bits. You're, you're kind of yeah. get, getting out there. You're recording stuff. That's kind of, cause I love, um, I love talk radio. I love I love the bits. And you were pretty much you turn into the guy on the morning who's going yeah. out in, in public and kind of creating a ruckus and making people laugh, making their commutes manageable, making people happy. You know, and, and, and radio has changed a bit nowadays, but I was the stunt boy. So I would go out and, you know, run concert tickets promotions for the morning show and, you know, do whatever they wanted me to do. You know, if they could think of a silly situation to put me in. I would go out and do that. And so that kind of got me going in the mornings here in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. And from that, I would fill in for the local feature reporter when she went out of town. Uh, Her name was Allie McKay. Uh, Some people know her. She worked for uh, KTLA, and then she worked for Kevin and Bean. And I think she's Yeah, I've heard of her. Yeah, Kevin and Bean, yeah. So I I would fill in for her. And when she decided to leave uh, the Utah market, her job came – open and me and two dudes went for it uh the other dude got it and i ended up getting a the similar job to the station across the street and did that for 10 years and so uh, you're doing that in the morning and and, and what is that like because you really can't you have to be like you're still the fun pig right you're still you're still the guy like you you got to be happy you got to be on you know and and you're by the way you're you're drinking i'm guessing at that point in time it's not out of control 
but there's really no way to manage any of like emotions or anything. I'm guessing. You know, Peter was actually a perfect storm because um, I was celebrated for my antics and for my fun pig ways, if you will. You know, if I came into work hungover, that turned into a bit because I was a guy in the 20s out there, single, you know, living the life that everybody thought everybody should be living. I was able to do that. I could go to the concerts. I could go to the club. I could do that. So the morning show guys kind of lived vicariously through me. And so, I mean, I was almost celebrated for being a party dude. And, and that was kind of the persona that I had. And that's what the station wanted. I heard on and one, I, of, I heard on one of your podcasts when uh, you tell the story about lighting the skis on fire and uh, yeah, you know, that's, that's pretty amazing. I mean, so it was right. It was right before the 2002 Olympics, the whole world's coming here to celebrate the best snow on earth. And that's what it says on our license plate. And we have no snow. And it's looking ugly. So the morning radio guys go, hey, you know what we should do? We'll light some skis and burn them uh, to the ski gods, and maybe they'll give us some snow. <laughs> and so we got these skis, and we put them on this altar, and we put tinfoil around them. And then this other guy, unbeknownst to me, while I'm talking to the TV station, is pouring gallons of gas on this tinfoil. <laughs> and you know, our TV like I do, we, we're, we're wanting the money shot. We want the good stuff. Yeah. So I get this wrap-up, light the skis, light the skis. And so I just turn around with this lighter, and I go to light these skis, and the fumes and everything just explode. And it just big ball of fire right on live news. And, and so and what's the guy? Face, is the guy asking you questions? Yeah. So so my face catches on fire, and everybody's freaking out. They, they go to color bars in the news, and my face is burned. And uh, I'm still on the phone, and I go, "Hey, I, I, I can't talk right now." Because you're doing, because you're doing. For people who don't know, you're doing radio and TV, like it's uh, yeah. okay, yeah. And, and, and the jocks are like, "Well, what's going on? What's going on?" And I go, "Dude, I'm on fire. The bit is over." And, and, and these guys are hounding me, and so I'm in the bathroom, and I've got cold water being splashed on my face, and the, and the morning anchor comes in and kicks in the door. Listen, I'll tell you when the bit's over. The bit's over when I say it's over. When we're on the air, you talk to me, and I turn around, and my face is just bright red because it was on fire. And I go, dude, I was on fire. What did you expect me to do? You know. And then he kind of calmed down, but I mean that was. The great thing about my persona on TV and radio was if it worked, it was meant to work. And if it failed, it was usually in epic fashion. And so it worked that way too. So I was really in a win-win situation. It didn't matter how it worked out because they'd either laugh at me or they would celebrate when I won. And so it was just this persona that was created that I, towards the end, I couldn't get away from. How is it going like at this moment in time? How is it working for you like, like socially and drinking? Like, are you kind of like, when you go places are people like, Oh, there's, there's Casey or are things picking up? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, from the radio, I moved from the radio into TV and, and get that full time. And then it's, I'm married at the time. I just got married. Um, my ex-wife thinks it's really cool because, you know, we're getting to front row tickets to all the concerts. We don't have to wait in line for clubs. Uh, you know, you know, I, I mean, there, it was, it was really cool to be able to do all that stuff, yeah. but it was tough because, you know, you, you've done morning news and you do it and yeah. you know, you, your day starts at three thirty in the morning. Yeah. All the cool stuff happens, you know, from eight till 12 at night. And so that doesn't leave you a big window to sleep. So <laughs> I did a lot of split shift sleeping. You know, I would get three hours at night and then I'd come home and take a three hour nap. Which for people that don't know whether you're drinking or you're not drinking, that will screw your body, your body up. Oh, yeah. It, it, I mean, it's just, it's just a recipe for disaster. It really is because uh, it takes its toll. And I did that for 20 years. I mean, I'm from right out of college. I did a morning show until three years ago. I was getting up at four o'clock every morning, had three kids, had a divorce, you know, and would be always on the road for junkets or, or, or stories or whatever. So the thing that I love about my sobriety now is I've never spent this this many mornings with my children. And if you don't have children, that's when they're the best because <laughs> they're rested and, 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 and they don't have time to be angry uh, and, and they're the best. So I, I really cherish those moments, but yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was, it was crazy, Pete. I mean, it was, but I think you probably see it quite a bit in, in, in what you've been around. Yeah. I, and, 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 but I like what you say too. It's funny to say this, but it does. I mean, drinking, for me, drinking and drugs was like the biggest lie I was ever told because it was so much fun. I mean, there were, there were really good times. And then when things started to 
I, you know, for me, I'm just an alcoholic. I have it in my family. Do you, do you have any of that? Any alcoholism in your family or anything like that? Yeah. yeah. So I had my dad on the podcast, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, about a year ago and his father was an alcoholic and we didn't talk about it much cause I didn't see him much, but he said he didn't realize it was his dad was an alcoholic until he saw him sober. And so he his dad, his always, dad stopped drinking. No, just one day he didn't have any alcohol and he goes, Oh, cause he said he'd wake up in the morning and drink a pint of straight out hard alcohol. Uh, so he was just a raging alcoholic, but he was always drunk. It wasn't until one time that he didn't have alcohol. He goes, Oh, this is what you're normally like. This is not good. You mentioned your divorce. Was alcohol, did it play a role in that? Like your relationships? It played, it, it played a major role in it. You know, I mean, it wasn't the only problem in our relationship. Uh, but my wife is uh, LDS. For those who don't know that uh, Mormon, uh, Latter-day sure, sure. Saint. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they, they really have a hard line on alcohol and she wasn't uh, an active member when we first got married, but when we had kids, she went back to the church and, um, you know, that, that put a wedge between us and then me drinking all the time didn't. And then me just trying to figure out, um, how to navigate this world. You know, I, I, most addicts are silver tongued devils and great manipulators. And for 40 years, I figured out a way to get my way almost all the time. And when my wife one day decided she's done and she just walked away, I don't blame her one bit. I would have walked away sooner. Um, I didn't know how to handle it. And that's when it really spiraled out of control. That's when I was really left alone with my thoughts and it got ugly. So you're kind of, uh, you're kind of quiet in your thoughts with the alcohol. Are you still, are you at this point in time, you're on, you're on morning TV, you're on channel five there. Yeah, I'm on Channel 5, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning, uh, working till 10 o'clock, and then coming home. When you work the hours and the shifts we do, you're done at 10 o'clock, and uh, all your friends got normal jobs, and that means that they're working until 5 or 6 at night. And so I'm left to my own devices at uh, 10 o'clock, and um, divorced. I got half the stuff in my house. I see my kids 50% less. Um, and I'm looking in the mirror and uh, things aren't coming up Casey and, uh, I don't know what to do because yeah. that's never really happened for me. And, uh, it wasn't good. And so I would, uh, tell myself I wouldn't drink. See, this is going to sound crazy, but I would look in the mirror and the mirror would look back at me and we'd have had full on conversation and I'd go, Hey, and the mirror would be like, what? And I go, we're not going to drink today. And the mirror would be like, yes, I think that's a great idea. And I go, we both agree. And the mirror will be like, yes, this is a solid plan. Two hours later, I'm on the back deck with a beer in my hand and a cigar going, one of us is a liar. Because <laughs> we both agreed that this was a good idea. And here we are drinking. What happened, man? And I tried everything. I figured, you know, Pete, I think I'm a fairly smart guy. Uh, I figured out how to, you know, get paid to have fun and do this stuff. Yeah. But I couldn't, I couldn't figure this out. And I made deals with the devil and promises to God and I, everything in between. And for the life of me, I just couldn't figure it out. Was there a time when you stopped for a while? Like, did you ever try to like say, okay, I'm not going to drink for X amount of time. And then you ended up drinking again. You know, I, yeah, but, but that was, but my goal wasn't to stop entirely. It was just to prove to those who thought I had a problem that I could do it. And, uh, I mean, I can, I, I can, I, I can do anything for a short period of time. Uh, I, I, I've got that endurance. I've got that will. I could do that to prove a point. And then during my marriage, it wasn't all bad. Um, you know, but it wasn't all good either. I don't want to downplay that. Uh, but I mean, yeah, I mean, I, there was years that I, I didn't drink. There was, you know, sometimes it would just be drinking on Sunday. Um, it, it was just, but, it, and then when I did do that, I would ride that for the next three years. Anytime somebody said I had a drinking problem. Really? What about 2009 when I quit for three months? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Does, it, does an alcoholic do that? I don't think so. It's because I'm in control of this. And, you know, toward the end, everyone would just roll their eyes and go, okay. Um, were, there a lot so of people, more... were there a lot of people concerned about you? Like towards, towards the end, like, you know, you get divorced, you're living by yourself. Yeah, you know, the, the crazy thing was there was a lot of people who were concerned about me, but I think they were concerned about me for a long period of time. And towards the end, they just washed their hands with it. They go, man, we've, 
We've had these heart to heart conversations. You told us it was okay. We, you know, we, we try to do everything we could, but I don't think anybody knew how to truly help me. Did you have you know, any major other, consequences with work? Yeah. I mean, I lost my job at, uh, KUTV, uh, because of drinking. And, um, then I got, then I had, uh, uh, driving while impaired, which is not a DUI, but a DUI. Uh-huh. Uh, and that was, I was DJing a party and, uh, I knew I was too drunk to drive. So I was just pulled my truck around to park it and I didn't put it in park and it rolled away. Luckily didn't hit anybody, but that one got me, a, a, a driving while impaired. And what happened at work? Um, Were you just not showing up or just like, you know, not no, performing? I was actually, I, I, I was actually, I talked to work and, and, and they were cool with it. Um, and everything was, you know, they worked with me on that one. Um, and then I, I, my drinking caused another problem and they just said, Hey, listen, you signed this thing that you will not have a problem and we've got a problem. So we've got to let you go. And yeah. And so, I mean, but once again, they did what they could, Yeah. but I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. I mean, I, you know, when I think of an alcoholic, I, I you know, I, I didn't think it was me. I thought it was somebody, um, uh, that, that, lived on the streets or beat his wife or, you know, I mean, all these things. And, and I was none of them. I was fairly successful. I was very well liked. And I seemed to have the life that so many people thought. And I was like, how can I be an alcoholic? That and, you know, the math, the math I, doesn't work. I can relate to you as far as like, um, you know, cause I, or maybe you never had this, but I always think sometimes, and, and I've kind of with recovery, I've gotten out of this, but I always think like, you know, if I walked into, I used to work in basketball and I was really bad when I was working for the Sixers in Philadelphia. And I was like, you know, if I had walked in there and told them, Hey, I have a problem with alcohol. I was like, I wonder if my whole thing would have started like, you know, five or six years earlier. Um, and, and I would have, cause people are willing to work with you, but when you're an alcoholic, like you're not looking for that help. So that's a crazy thing that you brought this up because when I'm at same meeting that my boss fires me and I pitch her on the new podcast, she actually says to me, Hey, had you come to us, you still have a job and we'd be working with you. Yeah. And I go, ah, oh. <laughs> how do I go to my employer and tell them I'm broken? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, you know, and then not have you guys look at me different all the time. That's the thing about my recovery, Pete, is I don't want to be sitting at the kids' table at Thanksgiving because there's alcohol at the main table and we can't have Casey around that. I didn't want them to be planning meetings and out, you know, outings with advertisers going, well, we can't go there because Casey's an alcoholic and they're going to have, I was like, I don't want any of that. Yeah. You know, and I, I didn't want anybody to treat me different. I didn't want that. I am different, but it's my problem, it's not your problem. And I didn't want people to walk around with white gloves and whispering because Casey's the alcoholic's here and we can't do that. You know, I didn't, that, that, that's the problem that I don't like. And now I know people don't don't really do that. But that was my perception in my head is that this is going to be who I am for the rest of my life. And you're going to always speak in hushed tones about Casey and the real fun's not going to start until Casey leaves. And so what happens now you're working, you lose a job because of drinking, but then, and this happened to me too, then you get another job. So you have consequences, but you fall ass backwards because you're talented and you know, people into another job doing the same thing. Yeah, and and, 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 and and God bless them because they took a chance on me. They knew everything, and, and, and they were good to me. And, and, I, and I really went into that job with the best intentions that, hey, look, I'm okay. I, I, I saw what happened. I'm never going to let that happen again, and everything's good. And everything was good for the first three, four months. And, and, I, was, and I was doing fabulous, and everything was cool. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe I don't have a problem as much as I think I do. Because I seem to figure this out, and, and, and I got a second chance, and I'm doing okay, right? You know, and the mirror's talking back, yeah, 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 and you know, yeah, we're doing okay. And slowly, but surely, the, you know, I started drinking a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a lot more, and then it just became to a point where I, I, couldn't, I couldn't figure out how to get out of it. It was such a vicious cycle that I didn't know which way is up. I didn't know which way to down. I didn't know who to ask for help. I didn't know what I could do. I was totally isolated and felt alone. And I didn't realize that I was surrounded by people who loved me and didn't know what to do. And they were just as scared as I was, but it was uncharted territory for all of us. You know, I mean, people don't talk about recovery and addiction as openly 
anymore. I mean, I mean, they do now, but it, yeah. it's still pretty stigmatized. Yeah, well, that's why your podcast is great. That's why, you know, it seems like we're kind of doing our things for the same reason. I don't want people to have a stigma towards this stuff because, like, just talking to you, dude, like, you're, you're a fun guy to talk to. I mean, clearly, uh, you don't need any help personality-wise. I mean, you know, the first couple months, maybe, or the first year or two, whatever, but, like, people come back. If you're living some kind of recovery, even six months, if you're living it, people come back to themselves and they come to life, in my experience. A hundred percent. I remember my dad and, uh, you know, you know, he was my biggest supporter and I spent every Sunday with him golfing and he, he would watch me drink and he tried to figure out how to help me. Uh, and he sat down and I, I remember, I used to think that this was a compliment to my dad. He goes, how are you doing, son? I go, I think I'm doing all right. But if I end up half as good as you are, I'll be all right. And I used to say that like, it was a compliment to my dad. Like he's this unattainable goal that if I can just be as half as good as you are, Life will be okay. And he finally goes, damn it, Casey, you do not get it, do you? And I go, what are you talking about? Because I'm thinking I'm paying him a compliment. Yeah. He goes, if you're not better than me, then I failed. I didn't work my ass off and do everything that I could and give you the life you did so you could be as half as good as me. If you're not better than me, then I failed and I am pissed. And you should be too. For me, I would just drink more on that because it's like, damn, yeah, yeah, disappointing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now I'm letting him down and I don't know what to do. And so, you know, the cool thing is my dad quit the same day I did. He's not an alcoholic, but he quit. And I go, why'd you quit, dad? He goes, because I couldn't ask you to do something that I didn't think I could do. So I'm going to quit too. And so me and my dad share the same sobriety date. Anything, I just, this is kind of a sidebar. Anything, any church of Latter-day Saints, like any, for for your family at all? So I I don't have any LDS members in my family. Okay. I I, I don't. Uh, My dad was a, he was a, a sportscaster up in Klamath Fall, uh, and then he did some color for Weber State. And, oh, really? And, okay, and, cool. Yeah, and did some advertising agency. Now he's acting. But here's the thing about the church. I thought for sure, because I live in a predominantly LDS neighborhood. I thought, oh, man, this is not going to be good, man, for my kids. You know, I'm going to have the Scarlet A out front. Kids aren't going to be able to come here because the alcoholic lives there. But right out of rehab, I can tell you this, and I don't know who did it, but I tried to find out. They mowed my lawn every day. Oh my they picked up my mail. Yeah. Uh, they took care of it, you know. And as soon as I came back, the neighborhood kids were able to come and play with my kids. I'm back in the carpool. They've been the most wonderful, gracious people that I've ever been around. And and, 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 and I truly love them. I thought for sure that I was just going to be an outcast. Yeah. And they've been nothing but inviting. It's, it's, it's been pretty cool. I tell people, today my life is 100 times harder, but it's 1,000 times better. Uh, and because I, 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 I never imagined when I was laying there on the field, blood running down in my face, sirens every, everywhere, clouds going by, that I would be able to be here today talking to you or doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I thought for sure my life was over. So you're back, you're in that field. Take me to that day, that last, you know, the last day you're drinking. You, you playing like you're playing golf earlier in the day. You're, you're out and about. I'm playing golf early in the day. It's a Labor Day tournament. Uh, booze is, is, is everywhere. And uh, I'm coming off a three-day bender, so I'm drinking just to get normal. Uh, and uh, then the golf tournament. And I'm going to drive home. And everyone's like, I don't think that's a good idea. I go, well, you, know, you don't know me. Um, and somehow I, I convince everybody or I sneak out. I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I get in the car and I, and I drive home. Uh, as I'm driving along, a car pulls out, and I swerve to miss the car and end up hitting two other cars. And uh, I just remember the crash. Uh, I don't really remember much after that. I remember a lady pulling me out, and I just wanted to check on the other people to make sure they're okay. She goes, you're hurt. You need to lay down. Uh, laid me down. I remember the blood running down from my forehead into my eyes. I see the sirens. Um, and I remember thinking, my life's forever going to be changed because of this. And I didn't know what that meant. Because I could never imagine my life without alcohol. And so I, I, I wasn't sure what was going on. And I just knew at that point that I had to do something else. The way I tell people is that I was the CEO of Casey Scott for 41 years. The CEO of Casey Scott. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is where we ended up. Maybe it's time we let somebody else run it for a bit. 
so then, so then they get everybody, and by the graces of God, nobody died. Uh, so people were injured. I hate the term not seriously injured because I think every injury is serious, yeah. but they say not seriously injured. They take me to the hospital where they handcuff me to a gurney and two cops watch in the front door. Uh, they stitch up my forehead. You know, they're talking to me. I'm talking to them. I don't really remember the conversation. I look in the napkin dispenser that's connected to the wall. It's one of those silver shiny ones. And I see a face in there, and I realize it's mine. But the scary thing is, Pete, I don't recognize the guy that's in that. It scared me. I was like, who is that guy? I know it's me, but I know it's not me, if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't recognize the person looking back at me. So they do that, and after the stitches are done, they check me, take my blood, and all that stuff. It's time to take me down to the jail cell. So they take me to the local jail cell. I go in there. Um, and there was no, obviously, there was no question. You were, you, they, people, you know, you were yeah. drunk. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. So completely disheveled and go in there. Uh, I'm talking to the officers. It's time for my mug shot. Um, I tell the officers, I go, hey, I think it would be best if we don't do a mug shot. And <laughs> 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 the officers go, why? And I go, I just think it's going to be better for everyone involved. They kind of go, shut up, get over there. So I get over there and I take my mug shot. And, uh, I that's go, cla- Casey, and that's they- classic. That's the all time best. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I just, I think it's best if we don't. And they're like, you're an idiot. Yeah. Get over there and take the mug shot. Yeah. So I get there and, um, uh, I bail myself out. Um, I go, they say whatever it is, and I put it on the card, and I'm ready to go. And I go, okay, I'll see you guys. And they go, nope, uh, you've been drinking. Uh, we can't release you to anybody. Uh, we can't release you on your own or cognizance, whatever that word it's is. It's got to be a day, um, right? I've, I've been in your shoes. I, I, that, that, yeah, yeah. They, they, they didn't make me stay a day. They said, if you can get someone sober to come pick you up. Yeah. Here's the catch. My phone is in my car. My car is in the junkyard. Um. And I don't know if you know this, but nowadays we don't remember anyone's phone number. No, I can tell you right no, now, no. my best friend growing up, Tony Henderson, 801-479-3789. That was his phone number. But I don't know anyone else's number besides that. Yeah. So I got to make a phone call. But I do remember one person's number. It's my ex-wife. And she's not a big fan of mine right now. And I don't blame her. How long um, had you been divorced? Um, maybe a year. Okay. And it was, it was very ugly. Not like an ugly divorce. I think she was just disappointed. Saw the writing on the wall and this is not going to be a good deal. So I stood in front of that phone for 15 minutes and weighed my options. I was like, I can do a night in jail or I can call her. Um, so I mustered up the, the energy to call her and I said, Hey, I'm here. Would you be able to come pick me up? And she goes, yeah. I'll be right here. Wow. So then I waited for 15 minutes before she got there. They finally released me. And I remember walking out in the courthouse and there she is. And we just both cried for 15 minutes. And, uh, she goes, all right, let's get you home. And so I get in her car and she's driving me home and I don't say anything. She doesn't say anything, but she drops me off on the driveway. And we get out and she says, let me give you a hug. And I go, I don't want that. She goes, why? I said, I don't deserve it. She goes, if anybody does, you do. So she gave me a hug and I told her right there. And I I didn't do something to saying it again. I go, I don't know how, but I promise you I will fix this and I will make this right. And she goes, I know you can. I've seen you do amazing things. And if anybody can do it, you can do it. And uh, she got in her car and she drove away. And I came in the house, uh, looked for a beer. Um, there was no beer, there was no alcohol in the house. Cause I had drank it at all. And I called the news station. I said, "Hey, um, if you haven't heard yet, you're probably going to hear that I got an accident and I got a DUI, and I just wanted you guys to hear it from me first." 
before the other stations ran with it or whatever. And I said, we appreciate that. And then I hung up the phone from there and I called a friend and said, I need help. What do I do? And she told me about this detox facility in Salt Lake and that I should probably call them. A detox. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, a detox. So, yeah. so I call, so I called them and I said, Hey, um, <laughs> I need to come, I need to come in. And they said, well, first we've got to check your insurance and all that stuff. I go, okay. And you know, they're like, but I need to come in. They go, well, we don't have a bed. I go, uh, I need a bed. I, I, I'm, this is not good. I'm not in a good place. And they said, okay, just give us some time. Call us back in an hour. So, okay. And I called my family and let them know that what had happened. What did they say? And they said, uh, we'll be right over. Okay. And I said, okay. And so then I called back. And I talked to the detox facility and they said, okay, your insurance is good. You can come in. We won't have a bed until 10 o'clock tomorrow. And I said, ah, it's not going to work for me. Yeah. I can't, I, I, this is, I, I'm not in a good place. I can't be here all night by myself alone, let alone I don't have a car. I don't have any alcohol. I don't have anything. Uh, what time do you guys open? They said, we open up at five. I said, I'll be there at four thirty. <laughs> they said, but we can't get you in for sure. And I said, I get that, but your place is going to be better than my place. So I had to call my mom at this point. I'm 45 years old. I got to call my mom and say, mom, I need a ride to detox. She said, okay, I'll be there. So she came and got me. And in the meanwhile, I'm sitting on my couch, the couch that I'm sitting on right now, the front door opens up. It's like the old West. My two brothers who are bigger than me come in. <laughs> my mom, you know, all my family. And they got little white papers in their hands. They're ready. They're, this, they've been watching intervention, Pete. They're, they're, they're ready to read. Everybody's ready to go. Everybody's got their roll <laughs> down. Yeah. Yeah. Like my older brother's like, damn, I knew this was coming. I got that letter. Honey, where's that letter? I need that letter. Let's get the letter. It's time. You know? and they were ready, man. They were ready to come in and just read that letter. Uh, and I stopped them. I said, hey, Appreciate it. I'm going to get help. We don't need the letters. What they my do? My little brother came. My, my little brother came and gave me a hug. Everybody gave me a hug, and then they left. Pete, they left. Because they have they have <laughs> like, like like stuff to do, right? Yeah, because they got life, and they've been dealing with this bullshit for a long time. Yeah, you know what I mean. And and, and I don't blame them, but they left. <laughs> and I remember sitting there. It's like, man, with me and my English bulldog Steve. Uh, we're just sitting here on the couch, and uh, is Steve there with you right now? Yeah, Steve's right here with. That's me. awesome. He's a good dog. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't do anything. I just stared at the TV. Uh, big fan of TV. Didn't even turn it on. I just sat here and just kind of sat in my own crap, which was a big lesson you learn in recovery that sometimes you need to, to just sit in that. So. The next morning, my mom picks me up. We go down, and they do the intake, and I've got to talk to the intake officer, and they ask you about all your history. My mom's like, can I sit in on this? And I go, I don't know if you want to, because I think I do. And so, you know, I, I, I talk about all the things that I've done. And uh, she goes, okay. And then, then Pete, listen this. Did you know people go to detox hammered? I did know that, yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Cause they go, are you drunk? And I go, no. And they go, we're going to have to do a test anyway. And so I tested it with zero zero. And I go, did you think I was lying? They go, most people come here high or drunk. And I was like, Oh, I didn't know that's a thing. That yeah. explained the guy pounded the natural light out front. You know? <laughs> yeah. I, was just, I was like, I didn't know that was a thing. Had I known that was a thing, I'd have probably done it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I tell people now that I'm like, Hey, whatever. If they're telling me about like a, a brother or sister, I'm like, whatever gets them there, dude, if you got to put a beer in the car and drive them to rehab, like do it, you know, I didn't know that was a thing. I was like, Oh, I thought I was coming here to get help. I thought that would probably be in bad taste if I was drinking. But so I went into it completely sober and uh, went up there and, you know, they take your belt and your shoelaces and give you these no slip socks. And I'm going to spend seven days in a detox. Now I don't know where I'm going from here. I just know that this is what I need to be doing. And so I spent seven days in detox about the fourth day in there of doing turkey hands and crafts and arts and crafts with everybody. There's like, Hey, do you want to talk to somebody from a recovery center? I said, I'll talk to anybody. Yeah. Just get me, get me out of these rooms. I don't care. I, yeah, please, please. Get me out of my head. 
yeah, so so somebody came in and, and, and I talked to them and they, they presented me with two different uh, recovery centers um, that I kind of vibed with that I liked the lady and I liked the gentleman. I said, like, I kind of align with your philosophy. That sounds good. I don't even know what my philosophy is, but that sounded good to me. Yeah. Uh, so once again, I'm 45, I got to call my mom. And, you know, she runs a real estate company up in Ogden. And I go, hey, would you mind going looking at these places for me? Because I think I'm going to go into them. Where are they, Salt Lake? Goes, yeah, Salt Lake. And she goes, okay, I will. And how far away so is that? Went, That's like, what, an hour? Uh, oh, for me, it's 20 minutes. But I mean, I, I mean, for your mom, who's in Ogden, she's yeah, got to yeah, drop everything yeah. and drive like an hour, right? Yeah, an hour and go tour these facilities yeah. for an addiction she doesn't even have. Yeah. And I'll put this poor lady through the ringer, but she agrees to do it. And she goes and checks them both out and she comes back and she goes, okay, I think this one's really going to be good for you. I think, you know, I think you'll like it here and I think you can do wonderful things. I said, done. Uh, so after seven days there, I, I moved into recovery and uh, I did this place called Pinnacle Recovery and spent 45 days there. And uh, I remember when my therapist goes, um, how come you ever ask how long you're going to be here? I said, because I figured you guys would tell me when I was done. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I saw so many people come in and say, I got 28 days or I got 30 days and then I got to go. I didn't have anywhere to go. I knew I didn't have a job. So, you know, I figured this would be the best thing for me. You know, let's, let's, once again, we're giving Casey Scott, you know, CEO job away. And let's let these guys run it for a bit. Let's see what it is. And slowly but surely, it turned out to be a really good thing, man. It turned out to be a really good Would thing. Would you say you had like the gift of desperation almost? Because like when you go, because you're a public guy, everybody knows who you mm -hmm. are. You go, you, clearly, you, I mean, from talking to you, you had an alcohol problem. And, uh, you yeah. know, this happens to you and it's like, you know, you kind of get put in whatever it takes mode where you're finally, because that's, that's magic. I don't, whatever you want to call it. God, magic, you know, the universe. You're finally turning your will over. Like, dude, I didn't even hear you. You didn't even say that like it was a second thought about going to a, re a rehab. You, you you talked to somebody and you were gone. You know, some people would have fought that. Like you were you were done fighting. Yeah, no, because I, cause, uh, Pete, I did everything I knew how, man. I've been battling this addiction for thirty years. You know, we'd have some good years and we'd have some bad years. Uh, you know, and I was always trying to outthink it, negotiate it, do something to figure it out. I've said this on my podcast, and I hate when I say it, but it's the truth. I had fought harder to keep alcohol in my life than anything ever. Yeah. Anything else. I had fought harder to keep alcohol in it. People would come to me and go, hey, maybe you're drinking. No, I'm not. You know, or maybe this is why I drink. No, that's not it. But there, it was everything but the alcohol, but the alcohol was the only thing that was constant all the time. So it was, it was easy. I saw this meme that said, um, I gave up everything for one thing. Now I gave up one thing and I get everything. And that was my disease. Is yeah. that I had given up everything that was valued to me. Anything that I said I loved and wanted, I, I gave that up for alcohol. And now all I have to do is give up alcohol and I get to have all these things back. I get to have relationships with my ex-wife, with my girlfriend, with my kids, uh, uh, amazing interactions, authentic interactions, and I get to be present. It's, a, it's, it's absolutely amazing. And, and, and it's all because I chose not to have alcohol in my life. And I say chose because I did choose not to have it in my, in yeah. my life. I was down in Vegas three weeks ago, and uh, we were at the craps table. And, and the, the cocktail lady comes around and says, cocktails, cocktails. And my buddies go, yep, yep. And I go, I'll take a water. And uh, he goes, my buddy goes, hey, look, even if you wanted to drink, we wouldn't let you. Yeah. And I went, I, I appreciate that. And then it started bugging me, Pete. I go, wait a minute. So I pulled the guy to the side and I go, I appreciate you being solidarity with me and saying that you wouldn't let me drink. But I need you to know this. The reason I'm not drinking is not because you don't let me. or the reason I'm not drinking is because I don't want to. Yeah. Because I know where it goes and I play the tape forward and I've got plans for the future. And if I put alcohol in there, I don't have those plans. I appreciate that. I mean, I, I remember sitting in, in rehab, Pete, and we'd be in these process groups and the people I was in there with, there was people for heroin, meth, Adderall, opioids, you name it. Right. Yeah. And this one kid goes, Hey, well, I can't go down to this park because that's where I scored. Or I can't go here because that's where I scored. And, and, and I, I said, stop. I go, so did you get sober to live or sober to hide? Because when we're done with this meeting, 
we're all 15 of us going to get in this white van and go to the gas station, which is my dealer. Yeah. And yeah. I can't just ignore <laughs> my dealer. I can't ignore going to the grocery store because they got beer. I can't just take a right turn every time somebody's got alcohol because I'm just walking in circles. And that's not how I want to live. I mean, I, I, that, I, I can't do that. I, I like the irreverence. I still like the crazy things. I'll go to a bar and I'm good till about 10 o'clock. And then when it starts to get crazy, I, I bounce. Same as me. Like because, once they move the tables out of the way, I'm gone. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know? Or somebody starts talking to your shoulder. Yeah. Then I, then I go, okay, so anything past this is not going to be worthy of, yeah. you know, remembering. And you probably won't. But I still like the irreverence. And somebody, I was golfing the other day, and somebody goes, what's it like being sober? And I go, it's pretty good. He goes, how's your life changed? And I go, I say sorry less. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but that, and, and that's the truth. I mean, I still get to do all the fun stuff and be irreverent, and I still get in trouble. I still push the envelope, but I say sorry a lot less. And it's not because I was a drunk. It's not because that somebody else was making the decisions for me. And that I truly, truly cherish. What about I your really, relationship? I know you cherish this, but just from talking to you, but what about your relationship with your kids? I mean, on the other side of this, there's, there's something, and my mom found this and there's, there's something on Facebook where you're, re, you're reading a letter. Is that from your podcast? So, so we put that on the podcast, but so my daughter, uh, who's a junior and, uh, she was probably most affected by my alcoholism, uh, because she was older and you know she was there for the divorce i've got three kids i've got a, a 16 a 13 and a nine okay uh and they've all got different versions of my 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 addiction but my third my 16 year old was most affected and so the english teacher goes uh we're going to do a narrative and we want you to write about something that's dramatically changed your life uh and uh my oldest daughter said everyone in the class was searching for a topic she knew exactly what she wanted to as soon as she said that so she sat down and wrote this letter of, it was called Back Then and Now, and how my alcoholism affected her life. But this story was never meant for me to read. It was just an assignment for her class. Okay. And uh, her teacher reached out to me and said, hey, uh, your daughter wrote a pretty cool thing. If she'll share it with you, you should definitely read it. He didn't tell me what it was you know, respected her privacy and all that. Cause this wasn't meant for me. This is meant for her and for her class. And then my daughter came home and she said, Hey, the teacher said that this is one of the best narratives you've ever read. Uh, I said, that's awesome. Can I read it? And she said, yeah, dad. Um, I said, well, just send it to me. And she never sent it to me. And about three days later, I asked her, Hey, where's that thing you said you're going to send me? She said, Oh yeah, dad, I'm going to send it to you. Um, and then it probably went two weeks after that. I never got it. So I finally go, Hey, Send me that thing. And she goes, okay, Dad. So she sends me this letter, and it says, back then and now, by Presley Scott. And uh, I opened it up, and I'm on my bed, and I sit down, and I start reading it. And this was her view of my divorce, my alcoholism, and her life up to this point. And as I sit there and read it, I was just crying. And it was so raw and so real. Peter was like a scary movie. I actually put the paper down, got up, and walked away because I didn't know if I could finish it. I finally came back, and I sat down, and I finished it. And it was amazing. It was beautiful. It was raw, and it was her feelings. And I said, you know what? I need to read this, and I need other people to hear this. So I didn't even tell my co-host, my producer, anybody that I was going to read this. I said, hey, I got something just go with me on it. And if you see in the beginning of the video, I'm very fidgety, very nervous because I'm, I'm not sure if this is a good idea or not. But I go for it. Yeah. And I, I just read it. And we put it online. Um, and then the, the KSL that you know I used to work for put it on their Facebook page. And to this day, it's got over 4.5 million views. Now, what kind of response did you get from that? You know, for the most part, it was it was positive. It I would imagine positive. it would be overwhelmingly. It was it was it was so many people that would like girls would write and go that was my story. Your daughter just told my story, and my dad passed away from his disease, and I'll never be able to tell him. Uh, or dads reached out to me and goes, when I saw you read your daughter's letter, it made me check myself, and because of you and your daughter. 
I'm 30 days sober. I've stopped drinking. Uh, and it, 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 it's been amazing. Like, like we have this publisher from New York called and they want my daughter to write a book because nobody's talking to young adults about addiction because nobody thinks about it when you're young. Yeah. You think that this is just, this is how it goes. And it, so it, 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 it's crazy because this was a letter that was not even meant to me, but it was such a gift and it gives, gives gave me and her so much closure and now we sit and we talk about her boyfriend and we laugh and we giggle and i still got one of those things in my car that i had to blow into at the start you know yeah. and we make jokes about that and because of my sobriety i have my three kids who are my life my everything it, it, it's amazing it, it, it's just absolutely wonderful and i you know i you probably hear this and people go well, if you can do it, I know I can do it. Hundred percent, bro. Hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because people saw you before, and they're like, "Wow, if somebody in that condition can figure this out or or turn their will over, you know." And it's true. I tell people exactly, like you said, hundred percent, brother. I trust me. If I can do it, you can. You can do it. The funny thing is, is, and I don't know if you got this when your whole deal went through, is that you know people go, "I can't believe that. I can't believe that happened to him." He had everything, and he just threw it away. And I want to go, yeah, because that's what addiction does. It goes around and looks for people. That's not how it works. Yeah. You don't know who. It doesn't discriminate. Just because somebody's got a record deal, a TV job, a movie thing, a basketball you know, a scholarship, whatever, it, addiction doesn't care about that. It wants who and everyone it can. That's how it goes want you and it will take everything that you value it'll take everything you say you love and it will spit on it trample it and throw it away it just does it, 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 there's only two ways this works you either stop or you die i don't how, see any middle ground how do you find the freedom today that you have that you clearly uh, have so the, the the place I went to recovery, they were great at showing us all kinds of different modalities. And for those who don't know, modalities are kind of the tools that you use to stay sober in your recovery. Uh, you know, meditation, uh, nutrition, uh, fitness, uh, 12-step, narcotic anonymous, or whatever it is. I like to look at my recovery as my recovery, and I do what works for me. It's a buffet. I go, I can do this. This makes sense for me. This does, and this is what I want. I, I went in 12 steps, not a huge fan of it, not because I don't think it works. It just didn't click with me and my personality. But I love Cocaine Anonymous. I remember going to those meetings going, hey, do you have to be cocaine? Do you have to have a cocaine problem to be here? They go, no, just in the bill, want to stop. And I was like, you guys are my people. You're, you're flippant. You're fun. And, and, and that's, what I, that's what I was attracted to. Yeah. So I found out what worked for me. And Jim really worked. I've lost 40 pounds since I quit drinking. I'll tell you one quick story. So in my recovery, yeah. During one of the process groups, they were going to show us all kinds of stuff. They brought in this Indian shaman, and they burnt sage, and they were pounding this elk drum, and they were going around blowing the sage in people's faces. And as they blow it in my face, I'm like, this is ridiculous. I'll never do this. This is a waste of money. I thought, this is absolutely crazy, right? And then right after they do all that, this lady goes, you got to wake up in the morning. you got to take your water. you got to bless it to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. And I was like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. So we go to bed that night, and I come down the stairs. I'm just hopping down the stairs. And I look outside the window, and we've got this river running by the, the recovery house. And there's two dudes out there. And you know what they do? They got their water. And they're holding it up to the east, the west, the north, and the south. And then they come walking in the house. And they were getting ready to walk in the door. And the first thing that popped into my mind was, I'm going to light these guys up. How ridiculous. <laughs> You're just going to break their balls. I'm going to give them a hard time. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to light them up. But something in me stopped, Pete. I go, why? If this helps them stay sober, if this makes sense to them, what kind of dick would I be to take that away from them? What, 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 who gave me that power? Why do I get to say what works? So I didn't say anything. 
Because if that works for them, that works for them. And if something works for you and it makes sense to you and it keeps you from drinking, then keep doing that. Do whatever makes sense to you that you can commit to, that you can do, that's going to be in the long term for your sobriety. So that's what I say. I go, my recovery is my recovery. And it works for me. I'll tell you what I'm doing, but I can't guarantee that it'll work for you. It makes sense to me. And I was coming up on three years and I, life is good and everything seems to be great. Has the podcast so helped you like, like what, with your recovery? I mean, because you're basically, how, how many times a week do you do it? We do it once a week. We've been doing it for two and a half years, never missed a week. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I was talking to my last guest and I said, if this podcast goes away, I'll have to find something else because this is my service. This is how I give back to the recovery community that has given me so much. So I never hesitate to get on a podcast with somebody who asks. I'll never skip a, a chance to talk to a, a meeting. I'll never skip anything I can do to talk to somebody because when I was down, there was somebody there talking to me and that I was listening. So that's what I do. That's what, that's my way to give back and be in service is just to do whatever I can. And anytime my phone rings, anyone hits me up on Facebook Messenger, whatever they do, if they've got a question, I answer it honestly, and I try to give them the best advice I can. With that, I go, I'm not a therapist. I'm just a dude. Yeah. And, but you got experience, you know, dude. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been there. You know, yeah. I, I mean, and, and, and I'm doing it. I mean, that was the thing. We were out of recovery, and this, you know, babysat by an 18-year-old telling me when to go to bed and where to go. I, was, I didn't like that. Yeah. And I go, you're just, you're on a power trip. And he goes, no. He goes, I'm sober. You're not. You want what I have. And I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess, yeah, <laughs> you, you, you better, you got this more than I do right now because I'm on the other side. So I just shut up and I listen and I do what I can. How did you reintegrate with relationships and stuff? That's always a big one. So I've been with the same girl for three years. I started dating her three months before the accident. And uh, I got in the accident. And in the first seven days of detox, they don't let you call anybody. The first seven days in recovery, they don't let you call somebody. So I've been dating this girl. I get in an accident. It's all over the news. It's all over the papers. Jeez. And she hasn't, heard, she hasn't heard anything from me. So I finally get phone privileges. So I call her up. And this is a true story. You can ask her because she hates me telling it. I said, hey. She goes, hey. I said, hey, do you have running shoes? And she goes, what? I said, do you have running shoes? And she goes, yeah, why? I go, I put those on and I would run away. I would not stick around. <laughs> and she goes, listen, I'm not happy, but I'm also not leaving. Let's just see where this can go. And so uh, she's been with me ever since. Um, and she drove me around for a year when I didn't have a license, made sure I went to all my appointments, did everything I could do, took me shopping for my kids for Christmas, and I love her with all my heart, and she's been absolutely the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, they say don't get into a relationship right out of rehab, but I was already in one. She didn't She didn't leave. So, you know, I think most of us are looking for a ride or die. Um, yeah, that's a pretty good indication. Die. Yeah, you know what I mean? And, and right now I'm telling her, I'm like, hey, you know, Apple started in the garage. You know, you're getting Casey in the garage right now because we can only go up from here, honey. You know? I mean, that's the thing is that I was stripped of everything that I valued except for my family. And I woke up and looked in the mirror and I was like, I'm still here. Well, I got to ask you this too. You're still here and, yeah. and it's very clear. Talent, I heard, I read a book about, uh, who the hell was the book about? I forget, but Leslie Visser, the, the woman who was on CBS and uh, has on Sports Forever, she was a writer for the Boston Globe. She was talking about, oh, she was talking about this guy, Sid Rosenberg, who, has, who had issues with drugs and all that stuff, and he's back on the air in New York. I think he's sober. But she talked about talent, and she said, talent is like a raft. You can hold it underwater, but it always comes back up. Now that you have a full heart and a clear mind, it's very clear that you're ready to, to, to do something when the opportunity comes up, what, what's next for you? I mean, the podcast is, is doing really well project recovery. We want to live in the now in sobriety, but we also want, you know, we have ambitions and stuff. What, what do you want to do next? You know what? I'm not sure because I've never had this kind of freedom. Uh, cause I didn't lose my house. I didn't lose my kids. And for the longest time I did that because that's what made me happy. Now, I don't know if it would make me happy anymore. So, I mean, I, I, I do marketing for a title company. I golf. I do the podcast. I DJ. I speak. 
And so right now I've got all these, these irons in the fire yeah. and I'm, I'm content with it. Uh, and so I don't know, I'm just going to ride this and see where it goes. If you'd have asked me 20 years ago, would fun pig be the, the face of sobriety in Utah? I'd have said, you're crazy. Fun pig, and yeah. here it is. <laughs> yeah. Fun pig yeah. is back. And he's, and he's talking about sobriety. And to be honest with you, sobriety is so much better. I, I mean, it really is. My golf game got better. You know, I didn't know people had sex sober, but sober sex is amazing. Not bad. <laughs> yeah, I was like, when you guys do this sober? And then I played sober softball? I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. This is, this is crazy. Now, I'm going to tell you this before I let you go, because I probably talked your ear off. They That's say awesome. everything better is sober. And I'll tend to agree, except for one thing. Yard work. Yard work <laughs> is not better sober. Yard work sober still sucks, bro. Come <laughs> on, man. I was like, this is horrible, man. Yeah, so I mean, it just life's good, and I don't know where it's gonna go, but I'm excited. And the great thing is, I've got a clear mind, and I'm ready for whatever it throws at me. Because if I can get through this, I can get through anything. How much speaking are you doing out in Utah, the Salt Lake area? I mean, how much of that stuff are you doing? Uh, you know, not as much as I'd like to. Yeah. Uh, we're working on some stuff right now to go into the elementary schools, yeah, and junior highs, and talk to them because ultimately, prevention is going to be a lot better than recovery. You know, if we can keep them from going down that road. And the kids today are dealing with a lot more stuff than we ever did as a kid. I mean, for us to get pornography a kid, we'd have to hit a gold mine by walking through a field and stumbling. That's it. Place. You're walking through a forest and you got a bunch of magazines or something. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? And one guy had it for the neighborhood and that guy was a jerk, you know. But yeah. now they've got it on their phones and they've got these vapes and, and all this stuff. And now I'm starting to sound like an adult. But, I mean, it really is prevalent and it's everywhere. And here in Utah... The opioid epidemic is crazy. It really is crazy. I mean, it's, it's one of the top states to abuse opioids. And uh, it's because the, the, the culture here thinks that it's not a legitimate drug because it comes from a doctor. But it leads so many people down a dark path to where they're ending up on heroin and, and doing things that they never thought they'd be doing. You're carrying the message, dude. And that's the biggest deal. You're literally saving lives. I'll take it back to the old podcast name. This is the payoff, dude. I mean, talking to you, uh -huh. like, it's great stuff. So Project Recovery is the podcast. Casey Scott, I cannot thank you enough. Pete, I love you, buddy. I mean it. And if you ever need anything, don't hesitate to call. Right back at you, my man. Casey, love you too. Thank you so much, dude. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. <laughs>